I always want to bring this up. Um, whenever the church is asking of the congregation, uh, I always want to remind you to fight that inclination that it equates somehow to the happiness of God in your life. Right? The church makes mistakes on this and has been, uh, it struggles to keep itself from uh, demanding uh, from its congregation and, and maybe even unwittingly leveraging things like guilt and shame to get people to serve. Um, I hope we never fall prey to that uh, threat. It couldn't be further from the truth. God loves you, uh, irrespective of what you do. It's actually impossible for God to love you more than he does. The definition of God is love. He loves you uh, beyond what you can possibly imagine. Uh, he can't fail to be himself. He just loves you. And he never leaves anybody behind, no matter how far behind they are or how lost they may be. The love of God does not change. You could say quite simply that the favor of God and, and ideally, the people of God, the favor of the people of God, is completely independent of your performance. Are you with me? I want you to know that. I don't want you to forget. You, you have to fight it because you feel it. And it happens, even, like I said, un subconsciously. If you think about when you feel like God is closest to you or when you feel closest to God, if you look closely, you'll often find it's connected to your performance. The closest to God is a roller coaster ride, unnecessarily. But it is because we think God loves us when we do good. And he doesn't love us when we don't do good. And the fact of the matter is God loves you. To the, in fact, to the, to the level that you discover and believe that God loves you, no matter what, is the depth at which you will experience the joy of serving him. If you don't know that, if you don't know that first, then the serving and the giving of your life uh, becomes drudgery. It, it can be based in fear and concern, and that's no good. The more you truly believe how much he loves you is the degree to which you will experience the significance and the satisfaction of what he asks you to do. It seems implausible, I know, but God's love is so far beyond what's reasonable to us. It's so far beyond what seems even reasonable to us. And like I said, I, I, I may be repeating myself a little bit, but Christian leadership can fail here. It's a slippery slope between inviting people into the joys and the rewards of servitude and sacrifice. It's a slippery slope from that to demanding and leveraging people under the threat of displeasing God. Under oftentimes the urgency of the mission. What God's called us to do. If you don't do it, then we won't be able to get there. It may be true, but it's wrong motivation. This is uh, precisely what's going on. In the book of Mark, in all the Gospels, in fact, with the Pharisees, those, those adversaries on, on some level of Jesus back in the day, 
It's precisely what's going on. It's the message that they are using to manipulate the people of God. Listen to this. This is Mark chapter 12. Jesus is teaching, and he says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and uh, be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. And Jesus, these men will be punished severely. They're so wrong, Jesus said. They're so wrong in their motivations. They're so wrong in what they're doing to the people of God. They're so wrong in how they're defining what godly is and what ungodly is. And they're so wrong in making people feel unloved by God by, because of what they can or cannot do. God has a way that we're all designed to live. It's called the law of God. And the Pharisees have co-opted that system, that, that, that moral compass, that law, for their own benefit. And they're taking the people that are supposed to be the benefactors and, the, and, and live the joyful life of the way of God, and they've turned those people into the means by which they can acquire their own aspirations, reach their own aspirations. This is a gross disrepresentation, a gross distortion of, of, of who God is, a misrepresentation of who God is, convincing people that it's conditional. It's not conditional. And Jesus is doing something about it. All through the Gospels, all through, all through the Gospels you see this. Throughout it, Jesus is disenchanting people of the wrong narratives of the spiritual leaders of the day. The narratives that, that are defining the lives of the people in wrong ways, dousing their spirits, causing them to quit and check out. He's dispelling this whole notion that godliness is about measuring up. Paul says like this, uh, in his letters to the, one of the churches, the one in Corinth, he says, my, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and his power. Paul, Paul's saying, look, it's not about me. It's not about what I'm able to do and how great my words are. It's about something much deeper than that. Jesus is helping people see the truth about God. And he's exposing those that are being untrue about who God is. Jesus says time and again, it's not about how great you are. It's about how humble you are. It's about service. It's about forgiveness. It's about relinquishing power. It's about showing compassion. It's about Loving people that don't love you, it's about turning the other cheek. It's about helping someone that has hurt you or could hurt you. When Jesus gathered those that had been marginalized and he spoke to them, he said things to them they could not possibly have anticipated or imagined. He said to them, yours is the kingdom. You are close, closer than these who say they've arrived. He said to these people that had been rejected and oppressed and outcast that they were the salt and the light of the world. And these people could have, have demonstrated 
from one perspective, uh, an inability to really provide anything. And he was saying, it's not about that. You changed the world. You are central to the kingdom life. Wow, he's trying to disenchant them of these lies and these narratives. He's also exposing the corruption and the bad character and the self-serving motives of those claiming to be godly. And while he's doing that, those very people are trying to expose Jesus for the same. They were saying Jesus is ungodly. They're saying this is what's godly. He is not. He's a heretic. He's a false prophet. So he's trying to expose them and, uh, and disenchant them of this bad narrative. They are simultaneously trying to diminish him. They failed at every turn, not because of anything really all that unpredictable or even all that fancy. They would question Jesus, and he just kept giving the right answers. He knew the scriptures better than they did. He knew God better than they did. He understood God's way better than him, them. And every time they tried to question him about the law, he would cut through to the core heart of it and just dumbfound everybody. They couldn't do it. But they couldn't have been more at odds if you think about what's going on here. They're trying to push Jesus down. And God is lifting Jesus up. Jesus showed up. He demonstrates who God is, and God's agenda, at least part of his agenda, is to raise Jesus into the space of king of all creation, over everything, including death, that nothing would be on his sovereignty, his control. The, the, the gospel stories, the gospel narratives, the, the gospel uh, history show Jesus rising into the seat, ultimately to the right hand of God the Father, and being given the keys to the whole thing. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time couldn't have been more at odds with God, and these were the godly. They're trying to push him down, and God is raising him up. They just can't see it. They've stopped listening to God. They heard him at some point and at some time. And he instructed them on how they should live. And they thought they figured it out. But they stopped listening. They stopped providing opportunity for God to change course. To reveal to them more than what they knew. So when Jesus came to show them the way of God. To show them the next, maybe even you would say the next phase of uh, the kingdom life as we understood it on earth. They couldn't hear it. They couldn't see it because they thought they knew it. They thought they knew it. They didn't really know God anymore, and they weren't listening anymore. Jesus is about ready, at least in the book of Mark, it's just a few paragraphs away, where they're going to kind of bring the hammer, this one final question, this one final moment, and they just ask Jesus outright, are you saying that you are God. And he says, I am, which is true and a play on words because I am, in a manner of speaking, is the name of God. He says, I am. 
He's about ready to make it clear, not only that he is the son of God, that he is the king, that he, that, but that he knows it and he is embracing it. Up till then, he's been a bit vague about it. But what we see in this little passage here in Mark is he's becoming less vague. He, it's starting, he's starting to make the point of who he is. While he was teaching in the temple courts, this is in Mark chapter 12, he asked this question. He says, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Really interesting question because he was in the lineage, the heritage of David. He was a descendant. Why do the teachers of the law, when they talk about the coming Messiah, speak of him as the son of David? Jesus says, if you even read David, you read the Old Testament, David didn't even refer to the coming Messiah as his son. Didn't say this would be son of David. He, he raised that Messiah up to uh, somebody and something much greater than a descendant of a human. And Jesus is putting this out there. He's like, this is an effort by those who are in control to stay in control, to, to bring Jesus down a step, to not embrace the fullness of who he is. But it's a good question. It's one that every human will ask, needs to ask, will one day have to answer. Who's Jesus? Who is he? When you answer that question, it isn't uh, give me the classroom answer to what, who Jesus is. It's not give me his bio. It is who is he to you? Is he just a great teacher? Is he just someone in a, um, a descendant of great Jewish leaders? Is he just the next best prophet? Who is he? It's important to ask the question because it's important to know the answer. <clears throat> it's, it's important to ask the question because it's important to know that, like the Pharisees, we tend to get a picture of Jesus that we lock in and forget that it might be incomplete or even wrong. And if we aren't asking the question, question if we're not pursuing Jesus, we, like the Pharisees, might be living our lives in a certain way, utterly convinced that this is how God wants it to be when it's not. There's really no alternative to godliness. There's no alternative to a life that God has ordained for you than to know who Jesus is. In knowing Jesus, you get to know God. And if you know God and you can hear God and you can be humble enough to receive, then you can alter your course. You can hear and obey, but you have to be open. You have to ask yourself, who is Jesus? We have typically, it's not, it's not, well, I'd say positive. It's probable, it's probable that we each worship a Jesus of our own making, at least in part. Meaning, this is, this is who I want Jesus to be. This is what I want him to say. This is what I would like him to, uh, how I would like him to direct me. And so that's the Jesus I believe in. 
We have to beware of Jesus who looks and speaks and acts in a way that I am always comfortable with. That'd be a good sign that it might not be the full picture of who Jesus is. When everything he says resonates with you and the way you want to live, right? You got to be be, beware of a Jesus who loves only the people you love, hates or opposes all the people that you hate or oppose. That is likely not the real Jesus, Jesus of our own making. Jesus is who he is. Nothing less, nothing more. He's the son of God. He's the king of everything. And it's up to us to discover him and to keep discovering him, to know him and to hear and to listen and to adapt and to humbly obey and allow ourselves to be changed, to be instructed, to be broken and sifted and shifted. I want to just implore you a couple things here. Kind of under this umbrella. Don't be afraid to find out precisely who Jesus is and to know him. Don't be afraid to find out who he really is. We tend to worry about that. As we anticipate, he might lead us somewhere we don't want to go. But don't be afraid. He's not going to lead you anywhere where he's not going to go with you. He's not going to lead you anywhere you're not supposed to be. He's going to lead you where you are going to be your best you and most glorifying to him. Don't be afraid. There's a couple things that, in these passages that we looked at and, the one, and another one close by that I just want to mention. At the end of this little section here where he was talking about watching out for the teachers of the law, they were walking around in their robes and finding the best seats and devouring widows' houses and making lengthy prayers and all that. At the end of that, this is what it says. The large crowd listening to him, or the large crowd listened to him with delight. Do you know how unusual that was for a large crowd to listen to a rabbi or a teacher of the day and be delighted? Jesus didn't pull punches. He said things as they were. He challenged people in the ways that they needed to be challenged. The very people that he said were salt and light, he said, you do have to be better, even better, more righteous than these Pharisees who are as righteous as it comes. That's a pretty, that seems like a pretty high bar. And Jesus is talking about something deeper. But he was requiring something of them. But they were delighted. The way Jesus spoke, the way he looked at people, the way he interacted with them caused them to be at ease. Not to be afraid. Not to feel shame. They were delighted. The Son of God speaking to them was delightful. Is that what you imagine? 
I hope so. My natural tendency is to imagine Jesus and God, to some degree, as a disappointed parent. I look at my own life and I think, I haven't measured up. I haven't done all that you've called me to do. I haven't lived as you've called me to live. And my natural inclination is to show up in heaven and expect God to be like, Mike, I expected so much more. But the scriptures tell me that when Jesus embraces me, when Jesus looks at me, when Jesus comes to me and whatever he does, whether he instructs, even if he's correcting, I'm going to be delighted. It's going to be heartwarming. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to know Jesus. Jesus went into Samaria one day where wasn't, no, no Jew was supposed to go. Just going in there made you, you know, defiled and before God. He didn't only go in there. He touched people that were contagiously diseased. Just went in there, helped. He didn't go in and condemn. They weren't following God. And he touched them. He blesses the poor. Those that have nothing to give. He blesses those who are brokenhearted, discouraged, little reason to live. And he blesses them. He interacted with women, which was unheard of. Even women of ill repute were delighted. Imagine that. Imagine having just stumbled and sinned in some way that you just can't seem to escape. And maybe in the midst of the sin, Jesus walks in the room. You will be delighted to see him. Can you imagine that? Can you believe that? Jesus was altogether different than the leadership that was in place. What they experienced in the temple and in the synagogue leaders was utterly different than what they were experiencing with Jesus. Because Jesus delights in them, delights in you. He knows them, calls them, hears them, serves them, laughs with them. In the book of uh, Luke, uh, Jesus was rejected by a Samaritan. You know, he helped some, and, and some rejected him. He was rejected by a Samaritan in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of his most famous parable. He's loving, he's joyful, he's patient, he's kind, he's good, he's faithful, he's gentle, he's true. He's a delight. And he's tearing down the systems that have been a heavy burden for the crowds to bear. And if you're living under the burden, either the burden of not being enough or the burden of continuing to be enough, right? Both of those are burdens. 
whether you haven't arrived or you have arrived. Jesus is releasing you from that burden altogether. He freed people. He wants to free you. He's a delight. He's delightful. Also in that passage in Mark chapter 12 there, did you catch this when I was reading through his, his uh, analysis of these teachers of the law? He says, they devour widows' houses. That's, that's a rough one. Like, what does that mean? He devoured widows' houses. If you have a teenage boy and you put a meal in front of him and he devours it, how much is left? Zero. Nothing. That's why we use the word, he devoured it. Jesus is saying that these, these teachers of the law would go to the widows' homes and they would leave them with nothing. What is likely that they did was leveraged their power to convince these widows that if they were to give to the church, they would be loved by God. Wicked angle for a lonely, widowed woman. God won't love you unless you give. And however much you give is how much he loves. And so how much did they give? How much was taken? Everything. Everything. They devoured them. And they thought it was the right thing to do. Jesus used the word devour to describe the adversary, the enemy, the lion. First Peter reminds us of that symbology, that the adversary, the evil one, roams around looking to devour. The adversary is trying to get you to strive for power instead of living for the design of joy and serving and delight. And these Pharisees have unwittingly joined the adversary, just tearing down what God wants to build. Jesus shows us how to be fully human in the way he gives of himself. He doesn't devour. He doesn't take. He's a giver. He's delightful. And he gives. And he serves. It's not destroying. It's not looking to tear you down, kick you out. He's a good shepherd. He's a good shepherd. And he goes off the path to find the one sheep in order to give, not punish, to get it back. The adversary wants you to believe that Jesus will take from you. Oh God, uh, I love you. Thank you for all you've done in my life. Please don't make me a missionary. I'm afraid, God, that if, you, if I give you full reign of my life, if I allow you to do whatever you want with me, that, it will, that I'll lose somehow. That what I give up will far outweigh what I gain. Our prayers forget he's a giver. He's delightful and he wants to give. He is not looking to take. Don't be afraid to discover Jesus. 
Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, coins worth of only a few cents. He calls the disciples over and he says, check this out right here. See this lady? I'm telling you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. I've told you this story. When I used to visit, it's been so long since we've been there, our, our friends in Bungoma, Kenya. And I visited with the late mother of my, one of my best friends. And I never wanted to go during lunchtime. I was like, Dan, can we just go in the middle of the afternoon? No, she wants you to come at lunchtime. And I don't want to go at lunchtime. She's going to give me her egg and her little peanuts. That's all she has. And she's going to give them to me. I don't want to take, but she wanted to give. This godly woman was not concerned because she knew God was even a better, bigger giver than she was. I said, said, uh, Daniel, can you just ask her why she does this every time we come? And so he did, and she said something I didn't understand, and he translated and said, and she quoted scripture. I don't remember exactly. He said, cast your bread upon the waters, and it will come back to you. That's trusting God as the greater giver than anything we could muster. Don't be afraid to discover who Jesus really is. He is delightful, and he will outgive you. How could she do this? How could this woman give all that she had? It's not a complicated formula. She believed. She believed in the delightfulness of God and the giving nature of God because she'd seen it. Poor people know the provision of God way better than rich people. Poor people depend on God and they see God come through. Rich people depend on ourselves or themselves and don't get the privilege of seeing God come through. She wasn't worried. She knew who he was. She'd experienced who he was. She believed. He delighted in her. Didn't matter how much she gave. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. She knew what she put in that plate did not matter, even though it was a thousand times less than what somebody else put in there. That God loved her the same. No different. Jesus' yoke is easy, the scriptures say. His burden is light. Rabbis always had a yoke. It was basically a design for life. This is how you should live your life. That's what a yoke was. Put this on, live this way, and you'll, you'll have a good life. You can navigate all the world and all its complexities. And Jesus was a rabbi. He's the Lord of all, though, king of all. So his yoke, his instrument of guidance and work is a place of rest where we respond 
to the love of God rather than earn it. It's a place where we rest because we know the mistakes of the past, the mistakes I'm making right now, and the problems I create in the future have no effect on the love of God and that he delights in me unconditionally, no matter what, and that he wants to give whether I deserve it or not. When you live in that space, when you understand that Jesus wants your heart and your sincerity, not for you to be the best, when you understand that he values the real you, not the one trying to prove your worth, when you know that he sees the depth of your gifts, the depth of the gift, not the comparative value of the gift, now you are primed to serve and to give in ways that are freeing and joy-filling and deeply satisfying beyond anything that you have maybe experienced in the past. When we truly believe who Jesus is, our life becomes implausible. People will look at your life and go, why, how can you? And there's different ways to answer that, but in your heart, it'll be, it's easy. It's the best thing I've ever done. Because I know who he is. Don't be afraid to know Jesus. He's a delight. He's a rescuer, a giver, a forgiver, a provider, a life giver. The effort we need to put forth, more than anything, isn't our gift and isn't our service. It's our pursuit of him. To know the heart of God and to believe it is the most important work you will do because out of that, your good work comes. Without that, I'm sorry to inform you, it's all bad work. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, we, we're, we need to make sure we're repenting of our, even our good works because our good works are often spoiled by why we're doing them. When we understand the goodness of God, the delight of God, the giving nature of God, the love of God, out of that resting place, our work is very good. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. That's where it comes from. It's an astonishing freedom. It's a, and it's an astonishing generosity that can flow from humanity. But it always follows knowing him. Don't be afraid to know God. Jesus gives us an excellent perfect picture, a good picture of who God is and it's delightful and it's generous and it's loving.